0: Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring research in energy, Medicine. My guest is my friend Dean Radin, who is the Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He's also Distinguished Professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's worked at at and Bell Labs, Princeton University, the University of Edinburgh, and SRI International in Menlo Park, California. He is the author or co-author of hundreds of scientific articles. His popular books include The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and Real Magic. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Dean. It's a pleasure to be with you once again.
1: Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be here.
0: You've done a large and extensive project on energy medicine, working with a team of people. I want to dig into that because there are so many angles and variables with which we can look at the question of energy medicine. But we ought to begin by attempting to define what energy medicine is.
1: Yeah, it's a misnomer because it's neither energy nor medicine, at at least from any conventional perspective. So, I, I, the way I think of it then is that uh, it is felt energy. It is a description about feeling of something that that is described as energetic. Uh, it does not, as far as we can tell, have anything to do with what a physicist or an engineer would talk about in terms of energy. But you also find words like frequency and vibration that are used a lot for, by practitioners of this. And what they're describing is what they feel. So it is Something like uh, a metaphor, perhaps, or, or a felt form of energy. And medicine, uh, we can think of as a wide variety of therapeutics. It, from an allopathic perspective, usually it devolves down into drugs or surgery. Well, this is not that. This, this is something else altogether different, which is interacting with an individual who's in some kind of need. And the need is resolved, or at least treated. So energy medicine maybe is a euphemism because it used to be called subtle energy treatments, and that wasn't very useful either because it's neither subtle nor energetic. Um, So many words have been used over the years to try to gain what is happening here when essentially one person's intention interacts with another person's need and somehow the need is resolved. So, you have
0: people who consider themselves practitioners of energy medicine, and they intervene through their focused intention, through visualization, prayer, and whatever internal means they may be using.
1: Yes, and some insist that it has nothing to do with intention, uh, and that it can be trained like anyone could learn how to do it. Uh, Others claim that you need talent, you need to be anointed in some way. Uh, it involves special perception. There's It's completely all over the map. So the and from a practitioner perspective, you can have your selection of one of dozens of different techniques, which may or may not be the same. In fact, it, the, from an external perspective, they're not the same. Internally, what's going on, they might be, but we don't actually know yet.
0: The examples might be Reiki healing or Joe Ray or... Religious science treatment, things of that sort.
1: Shamanic healing, aura healing, spiritual healing. Yes, the list goes on and on.
0: So, with a team of people, you engaged in a very extensive project. In fact, five different research papers have already come out of it. I gather that it started with a pool of some 380 individuals who had carpal tunnel problems. They were experiencing pain in their wrists and that was the basic sample you worked with.
1: Right. So, we recruited a bunch of people, 190 actually, came to the lab for the healing session we recruited 17 different energy healers and each healer worked with approximately 10 people sometimes a little bit more for a single half hour session in the laboratory so among the measures that we were taking the most important one was the clinical measure of was carpal tunnel pain reduced and we we don't always talk about it specifically as carpal tunnel pain because in order to use that diagnosis, you need to have neurologists diagnose it as such. So we simply recruited people who had hand or wrist pain and left it at that. And the measurement was the standard uh, subjective measurement of that they feel their pain got better or not on a 10-point on a scale. And so that measure, which is purely subjective, but nevertheless, that's like the standard since pain is subjective... That significantly decreased as a result of the half-hour session and also remained decreased after a three-week follow-up, which is kind of shocking, actually, when you think about it. A single half-hour session by a healer that most of the clients had never met before, many different kinds of healers, significant reduction in pain that seemed to persist for at least three weeks.
0: That's a very impressive finding, but what struck me is that, unlike other studies I'm familiar with in the area of healing, I did not see that you used a control group.
1: Right. Entirely because of two reasons. One, it costs money because it would have to double the the size of the experiment. But even more importantly, what does it mean to have a control group in this context Well, presumably it means to have something like a sham healer or a real healer who wasn't healing. Well, when you talk to healers, they don't not want to heal. It's very difficult for them to be in a context where somebody is in need of something and they're not going to do it. So that wouldn't work too well. So another approach you could take is like a wait list where everyone gets treated at some point, except that you you have a, a group that is not treated initially and then they're treated later. And then you can flip that. Uh, We decided, again, not to do that, mainly because of the amount of of resources required in order to get a large enough group of both healers and patients. We call them, I think we call them participants. Um, It's simply a matter of resources. What, What can you do? However, we did look at the issue of whether this was a placebo response by asking about people's expectations and belief about energy healing. And so if there was a strong correlation between the results that they got and their belief or their expectation, then you would say, well, okay, this was simply a matter of, of expectation that was driving it it's a placebo, but there was no significant correlation, which means that some people who came in had no expectations and no belief or even negative about what a, a healer would do. And nevertheless, they still got better. So it's not exactly as good as a control. But it's it's like one step in that direction.
0: The thing that puzzled me in reading over the first of these papers is that 190 individuals, I think, were drawn from a pool that happened to be about twice as large, which made me think that maybe you were originally planning to use a control
1: group. No, it was entirely on who would actually show up, right? It, it's easy to recruit people when they don't actually have to do anything. But when they have to come to the lab and they're spending time to get there and time to go away and coming back three weeks later, it's not so easy.
0: Well, you had a large number of measurements while they were there in the lab. So, you were really trying to pin down as best you could what was going on during the energy healing process. And One of the most unique things that you endeavored to do was to have an individual that you refer to as a seer, presumably somebody with synesthetic abilities or clairvoyant abilities, to describe what they observed during the healing process
1: right this was purely exploratory Uh, we did it because of many reports by healers and sometimes by patients that they see or feel something well since uh, normal instruments that you'd find in a physics lab or an engineering lab they don't pick up much of anything we figured okay we'll get somebody who is says that they're sensitive to these kinds of things uh, and have her in this case a, a woman was selected, uh, to take copious notes for every single one of the 190 sessions. So we'd at least have that as a uniform measure uh, and simply describe what she saw. So that that becomes one of our papers. It's a matter of a subjective, a single case study of a subjective seer's uh, experience of all of these healing sessions. And when you do that, you can then do basically a qualitative study where you can find out Is there a taxonomy of ways that she perceived, especially in correlation to the results of each session, the uh, subjective and objective results of the session? So that's what that paper was about. And of course, ideally, what we'd have is uh, some kind of recordings of all of the sessions, like video recordings and other recordings, which many, many seers can look at. What we don't know is, could they perceive something happening over a video well, it'd be nice if they did, because then we could have hundreds of people do it. We don't know if that's even possible. but And we couldn't get, we actually were already kind of maxed out in the room that we were using, so we couldn't have more than three people in there at once at the same time anyway.
0: I gather the seer was actually in the room, in the laboratory during the energy healing sessions.
1: Yes. Yep. The healer, the patient, and the seer, yeah, all in the same room. And you did go through a relatively extensive
0: recruiting process in order to identify a person who would be appropriate for that task.
1: We had a number of candidates, and uh, since I was not directly involved in the selection, I don't remember exactly what it was. You probably know better than I do, having just read the paper. Uh, but there was a, a method of selecting uh, the seer to test whether or not their claimed perceptions actually had any objective uh, way of measuring it. So, the, the one we ended up selecting was actually all of them were in a sense professionals in the sense that they have been involved in intuitive practices and healing practices for a long time. But this particular seer was the one that was selected.
0: Yes, as I recall, they did a sample run with one of the office staff just to see if it made sense to begin with, if there were reasonable correlations. Another interesting study that you did involved an apparatus in the laboratory with the healers involving random number generators of the type. I think they were similar to the ones that were used in the Global Consciousness Project developed by Roger Nelson and which as I recall you were also involved. Uh,
1: Yes, kind of, except that uh, the, the Global Consciousness Project random number generators produce bits. And so what we have developed is, we call it a quantum noise generator, because it is taking the guts of a random number generator and recording the noise directly. I mean, it's digitizing it, but nevertheless, we're recording noise and not turning it into bits. And the reason for this is because uh, once you have a commercial type random number generator, it's very difficult to reverse engineer what might have happened in the device. You can see that things happen, but because of the exclusive-or uh, logic gates and the output, it's very difficult to kind of peer backwards and find out why did this bit go this way and that bit went that way. Well, it's all coming basically out of noise from electronic circuits, and so we tap the the original noise source and digitize that. So we we had a device that was made by Lauren Carpenter. Uh, that was had multiple versions of this, 16 different uh, quantum noise generators in a single box, and that's what we had running during the the healing sessions. And
0: based on quantum tunneling, as I recall.
1: Yeah, we use uh, a back bias diode, which is what many of the modern, actually even older, random number generators used as uh, the source of noise because of the uh, electron tunneling effect, which is a quantum effect. That's why we called our device a quantum noise generator.
0: And if I recall correctly, the measurement you were using was to see if there was some coherence that would develop between the 16 different random outputs in this device.
1: We're looking for a disturbance in the force. And so, uh, the way I interpreted uh, Obi-Wan's expression was a, a ripple in entropic spacetime. So what random generators are maximum entropy devices, they produce maximum randomness. And we detect that something interesting happened in correlation with focused attention by a change in entropy, a negentropic effect. That's what the Global Consciousness Project had looked at and that's what all of these individual experiments, PK experiments with random generators are all about. So we've had the hypothesis that Something about a healing intention is at least focused attention, whether intention's involved or not. Attention is there, and it's focused for a half an hour. So we recorded continually this quantum noise, and rather than turning it into bits and doing statistics on bits, we rather looked at autocorrelations in the noise itself. We could take a chunk like one second chunk of noise and then autocorrelate it with a sliding window. And what you're looking for then is, is deviations in in uh, uh, as Peter Bansell once said, it's like the stickiness of the, between the bits. in this case, digitized noise. There shouldn't be any if it's truly noise, uh, quantum noise, it's no relationship at all. But it looks as though when attention is focused in a vicinity that there is a dependency that shows up in time. So that's another order correlation measure. So that's one measure that we were looking at. The other one, which by the way, is a temporal measure. So that's our time part. The space part was looking at the relationship between the outputs of each of the 16 generators. And you can do that in many ways. We just simply took the pairs, the average pair of all of the correlations between the outputs of the generators. So that gave us a temporal and a spatial measure which turned out to be independent of each other. So they're combined into a space-time metric. And this is where, going back to a disturbance of the force, it suggests that just like gravity is thought, or at least perhaps metaphorically thought, to bend the fabric of space-time, there may be something about focused attention which bends entropic space-time. And so our random generators were, were looking for something like a ripple That would happen or distortion in this entropy space uh, and that is what we found so we found that the beginning of the healing session you'd see a deviation beginning Uh, it would increase up to the point of around i forget exactly 24 seconds or 24 minutes of the 30 minute session and then it began to slack off and went back down to chance so it looked very much as though there was a, a small but continual effect that just accumulated over the course of the half hour healing session, and when the healing stopped, it, everything reverted back to normal, as though there was a, a ripple in space-time.
0: And this was highly significant from a statistical perspective.
1: Yeah, so it, it was highly significant, and as a control then, since we were, the generators were running all the time, we simply took uh, all of the same metrics in terms of when sessions took place, and went eight hours into the future when there was nobody in the lab. So we compared that against what we saw during the the laboratory itself, during the healings, and yeah, there was a big, big difference. And by the way, this is not the first time that uh, somebody has tried to do this, that Wayne Jonas and his group did a very similar thing with the healer um, Myotik, now I'm forgetting, I I don't remember this first or last name, but anyway, I think you're
0: referring to a healer named Mayo Tech Virkus.
1: Yes, yes. So he did a healing session, and they had a random number generator there, and found a very similar result, that something during the, the healing context creates a deviation in the random generator, which is not too surprising when you look at the entire body of studies looking for so-called field consciousness effects.
0: Well, if you combine this with the other highly significant effect that you reported, which was the subjective reduction in pain, these two measurements correlate with each other and seem to suggest that something is going on well above and beyond any kind of placebo effect.
1: Right. We, we can't say that for for a certainty for the subjective measure, but the fact, as you say, that there's an objective change and also in water, which is one of our proxy targets, uh, we end up with a number of objective and subjective measures all suggesting that something happened. And so the subjective one in this case was the one that we were hoping would happen, namely a reduction in pain. But that correlated against objective measures says it's not just expectation effects. There really was something that happened.
0: And I suppose it is fair to say as well that conventional science has, to my knowledge, no good explanation for why you would be getting deviations like that in a quantum mechanical random event generator.
1: Or in water, or anything else, or in the human body, or subjective changes in pain. No, we we don't have – of course, in any kind any kind of medical experiment, you're looking for the mechanism of action. We have no idea what the mechanism of action is. So we're at this stage. Uh, it's unfortunate in a sense that uh, we don't even know ex- exactly at this point how we would conduct studies to begin to unravel what the mechanism of action is. And my guess is that we're, it's the same problem that we're dealing with in size studies in general, that we can see effects. We know that the effects are correlated oftentimes with attention and intention. We don't know how those happen. And about the the closest I can see to quasi-mechanistic explanations have something to do with interpretations of quantum mechanics. So I'm very hesitant to say that quantum mechanics explains anything here. But the fact that there are already at least a half a dozen, if not a dozen, interpretations of quantum mechanics, some of them put consciousness front and center. In which case, the, that suggests that some elements of the physical world are related in some way to some elements of the mental world. Well, everything we're talking about here is kind of, is, is a kind of mental healing. The how it works, we don't know yet. That's what we're, we're working on, uh, both with uh, colleagues who are theorists, who uh, oftentimes will, try, will initially come up with a theory of everything, which is not helpful, Because maybe it will explain things pretty well, but it's not testable. So, we want a more constrained theory that says, well, maybe what's going on is quantum entanglement of this particular type that does this and that and whatever. Well, then we can test it and see if if that's a viable idea. But when it comes to this domain, we, we don't have a guiding theory yet.
0: The study that you did involving spectrographic analysis of water is interesting. I'm going to link to an earlier interview I did with Stefan Schwartz, who did a similar experiment many years ago and I gather that the work you did is pretty much a replication of his initial study with similar results.
1: Yeah. So, we we did our study with water based on the paper that, that Stephen did, or the study that he did. Uh, he used a, an infrared spectrometer to look at the molecular change. and and water. And we did the same thing. We used a a very fancy uh, spectrometer called uh, attenuated total reflection Fourier transform infrared spectrometer with a liquid nitrogen cooled detector. And it's measuring a property of water called quintessence, I believe. Um, Or no, evanescence, evanescence. And so the idea is that you, if you take an infrared beam and you shine it into water, uh, depending on the angle that you hit it, it could either go into the water or it could sort of skim along the surface. So an attenuated total reflection system aims the beam so it skims along the surface and it repeatedly bounces in and out of the water right along the surface. And depending on how much of the infrared is absorbed, you, if you're looking at, at its – Resonance with different molecular states. So you sweep the energy of the infrared from a lower to higher frequency, you see what is absorbed, and you can infer, based on the absorption spectrum, what is happening to the molecules. So we had a little vial of water that we asked the healer to wear in a necklace, uh, and the same kind of setup in the patient, and we measured the water before and after the healing session for both people. This water, by the way, is a laboratory-grade, triple-pure kind of water. It's not tap water. You use that kind of water because uh, it doesn't have contaminants in it. Like every every form of non-distilled water will have something else in it. When you do a a spectroscopy analysis of it, you could see everything in the water. And we just wanted a clean signal. So we used this special water. Uh, We found a uh, no-difference pre-post in the water that was around the necklace of the patient. But we did find a significant difference around the necklace of the healer. And the difference that we found was in the uh, the portion of the spectrum, which is what Stephen had found as well, which has to do with the stretching of the bonds, but it could also be the breaking of the bonds. The hydrogen-oxygen bonds can be pulled and break, where they can be squished. So, it's kind of this motion. That's where we found a significant difference in uh, the structure of the water in that experiment. And this is across, again, the 190 sessions and 17 healers.
0: That's another significant finding that replicated an earlier study, which is very important. On top of all this, you also looked at a wide range of environmental factors that might have contaminated or influenced or correlated with the findings. And I believe the most significant of these was barometric pressure.
1: Right. I looked at local weather on the day of the test, uh, the geomagnetic field, uh, and a variety of different space metrics, things having to do with uh, solar wind and uh, solar rotation and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and it, yeah, it's true that biometric pressure seemed to be the uh, local barometric pressure seemed to be the thing that correlated the most with what we found, which is not too surprising because there are all kinds of pains that people get, which are also correlated with barometric pressure. So maybe we're simply seeing something that's already known. Like I, I know that my, my body is extremely sensitive to changes in weather, barometric pressure, humidity, all of that. I, I can feel it coming. I feel pain when it changes. So uh, it's not surprising to me that somebody who's already experiencing pain would find that uh, we would find actually in the whole that there would be changes in pain depending on what the barometric pressure happened to be
0: parapsychologists have for a long time looked at things like geomagnetic fluctuations, local sidereal time, potentially the influence coming from the galactic center, and I think you looked at a number of these variables as well.
1: Yeah, we looked at the the so-called geocosmic factors. And uh, again, I did that analysis, but it's been so long ago. You know how long it takes between writing a paper and actually having it out? So generally what I do is uh, you spend a huge amount of attention preparing the paper, writing the paper, getting it out. And then you wipe your mind clean because there's only so much you can shove in there. So unless they read the paper and have uh, know that that's what we're going to talk about, I'm not going to remember the details that well. So you may have to tell me what the, the effect was. I, don't, I think it was a solar variable that, that correlated with the results of the experiment. Was it not?
0: What I recall, Dean, is that considering that you were measuring so many different variables, you found a number of interesting correlations, including those we didn't talk about relating to the findings of the seer. But when you then did a correction because of the many different variables that you were analyzing, they became less significant statistically.
1: Right. But some survived the correction for multiple testing. And and of course, those are more interesting because it means that uh, they might individually be quite significant. It's true that if you look at 50 or 80 variables, some of them are going to show up just by chance. But you can do a correction and you can say, okay, well, these few actually survive the correction, giving more confidence that there really are a real effect. And as I said, I think one of them was a solar variable, like solar wind or something like that. Which, by the way, that particular variable has shown up in psi studies too.
0: As I recall, there was a fascinating study you did related but very different years ago when you were in Las Vegas. You looked at casino winnings and correlated them with the phases of the moon.
1: Yes. Yeah. So, we found that most of the jackpots occurred on the day of the full moon plus or minus a day. And interestingly, so we mentioned the Global Consciousness Project, Uh, I did an analysis uh, to see what the data looks like in that database, 23 years of data per second. So there's a lot of data as correlated against the moon, and there is a significant effect by the moon it's not at the new moon or the, or the full moon. It's on the transition periods about, uh, uh, I think it's called the half moon or quarter moon where it's, it's uh, the midpoint where it has shifted from new to, to uh, full. It's halfway in between. That's where you see actually a significant effect, both going waning and waxing in both directions. So uh, I, I don't know what to make of that, Because the moon's not supposed to do that, unless what we're seeing, and I haven't done this yet, but it might be that we're seeing something like a tidal effect, a gravitational effect, which would be quite interesting given the, I would say, proto-theories that some people have that uh, maybe psi is related in some way to gravitational effects.
0: I don't recall specifically which environmental effects showed up in the healing study, but it does seem that from the overall database in parapsychology relating to these sorts of things that uh, many correlations, particularly with geomagnetic activity, have turned up in various studies. Right.
1: Right. So, the correlation there might be related to uh, um Magnetic storms interfering with the temporal lobe in particular. This is what Michael Persinger group had looked at in, in great detail. And it kind of makes sense to me that if if you're in a, a magnetically disturbed environment, like during a magnetic storm, our, our brains are full of electrolytes and it works on electrical properties, among other things. So people with uh, sensitive temporal lobes, I imagine... That is the metaphor. Their brains get a little bit scrambled when during these storms, and so they're not going to be quite as psychic. So the correlation that's usually found with the geomagnetic field is a quiet geomagnetic field is correlated with improved psi performance, at least for perceptual psi. That may not be true, but it could be the opposite for um, psychokinetic type of psi.
0: While we're on the topic, James Spottiswood did a study many years ago looking at remote viewing research and correlating it with local sidereal time. There was a particular spike in remote viewing success that came up in at least two different meta-analyses at 13 hours and 30 minutes local sidereal time. I don't know if you were looking at that in this study. I don't recall that you were. But while I'm with you, do you have any further reflections on that? Have have you kept up with the latest thinking on local sidereal time?
1: I think the current thinking is that uh, there is a possible confound in that finding because it's correlated with season. Local sidereal time and seasons are are, uh, like two – oscillating uh, values that can make one seem as though it's the cause of something where actually it's the effect of the other so it is not clear that local sidereal time is one of the main factors it might have been an accident or a confound as a, re- a result of something else uh, what the something else might be could be related to the solar period uh, to the season, I mean, solar period is the rotation of the sun, or where the sun is in in relationship to the Earth, or the other way around, uh, or even where it is in terms of the relationship to the solar system. So we can have a, a daily effect, a 364 and a half day effect, and so on. Lots of different cycles that are going on here, and it's very difficult to know for sure what's causing what. So we we did decided not to look at local sidereal time in this case. Uh, partially because it wasn't quite long enough. I mean, they, we collected data for about six months. Uh, that would again given us some differences in local sidereal time, but not very much. You need a large enough database over a longer period of time to be able to see if there really is a pattern that's showing up. That's why for the GCP with 23 years of data, you can look at lunar cycle and get lots of them, and that's where you begin to see these effects. Back
0: to energy medicine. I guess it would be fair to say that if you look at these five studies taken as a whole and the different correlations that you found, the reduction in pain and the correlations with the spectrographic analysis of water and the negantropic effect on the random event generators, one would have to be positively inclined towards energy medicine as a reasonable healing modality.
1: Well, and not only that, I mean, you can go to the Cochrane reviews or just look up in the in PubMed and the literature and what you usually find are studies on Reiki more than other methods. But of course, plenty of studies on therapeutic touch and other methods that look kind of like that. Uh, overall, at least for pain reduction, the evidence, I think, is clear enough that, yes, it is, it's a real thing. It, it works almost certainly involves talent on the part of the healer need on the part of the of the patient uh, possibly some degree of openness on both sides like uh, the healers usually are open because they're doing it but the patients could or could not be openness and that I think probably modulates it to some extent um, so it works the the reason why and actually in some hospitals the nurses are using it regardless of what anybody else thinks because they know it helps the the interesting question always is well then well how does it work well, it's, it'll require some refinement or adjustment or expansion of our paradigm about interactions between people, among other things. And it gets really tricky when you start asking healers, uh, you're, you know, you're working within arm's reach of this person. Uh, could you do the same thing for somebody who is on the other side of the planet? Most of the healers will say yes. They say we don't want to talk about that because it freaks people out, but. Yeah, this stuff works at a distance as well, or sometimes even better than it does close up. Well, from a mainstream perspective, that's frightening. Because now you don't know why you feel the way you feel. Maybe somebody on the other side of the planet is thinking bad thoughts at you, or good thoughts, or whatever. But it's, it is frightening to accept the reality that somebody else can influence the way you feel. So that's one of the reasons why it's probably, it, it goes sub rosa, even though it actually works. Uh, and it is also probably the most frequent email that I get from somebody who is feeling disturbed by by something like this, and they want to know how to stop it. Well, I mean, there, there, there are historical ways of, of uh, stopping psychic attack, and I think that's about the best we, can, we know how to do at the moment. Um, but that's not very it's not satisfying from a scientific perspective because it's, it's hand-waving at this point. We don't really know what's happening. Uh, so not surprisingly, this is not a mainstream topic of study within the medical world. Uh, even though it can demonstrate that it does something, it works. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to break that taboo. Uh, maybe it would require something like the the taboo that broke the acupuncture resistance way back when. Namely, I think it was a US senator or a congressperson who had an operation and they used acupuncture for the anesthesia and it worked. Well, then suddenly, pretty quickly afterwards, uh, the, the word got around and the resistance to even talking about it as a, a modality began to break down. So we we need some big effect like that. Major celebrity or something is healed in this manner and is credible and is able to tell that story, and that that's how things change. If I recall correctly,
0: with regard to acupuncture, and maybe it's just a different line of thinking, it it was Bruce Pomerantz at the University of Toronto who discovered that acupuncture stimulation caused certain hormones, endorphins, to appear that blocked pain.
1: Yeah, endorphins, right? So. Yes. So I think that I think that may have been either around the same time or just after the the uh, government official had reported this effect. Uh, but as you see, then the, these are sociological changes. The announcement about endorphins gave scientists or at least medical researchers a sense of comfort that if you poke somebody in just the right place, you can produce a pain reduction hormone. So that now sounds like a mechanism, even though that's probably not what's going on. It's something way more complicated but it gave like a like a little bit of oh okay now we can accept this because we have a kind of a, an explanation so it's it's a combination of things like that you have a kind of explanation you have kind of a credible person talking about the incredible those kinds of effects carry uh, enormous weight in terms of the sociological changes and so something like that maybe will happen here too we'll find that we can measure entropic changes. We don't know exactly how that works yet, but we can make up stories like a uh, few one person's sense of internal coherence can be transferred to somebody who is out of coherence. And, and through some kind of entanglement, whether metaphorical or literal, uh, you can transfer that feeling of internal coherence. And that alone will cause all kinds of epigenetic changes, uh, which will cause someone to feel better. So that's that's a proto-theory I just made up. I have no idea if that's true or not, but let's say that, that that's kind of a proto-theory. Uh, as elements of it, which are testable, which we can do with random number generators, we're detecting field changes. Uh, and you need a couple of well-known celebrities to say, I don't know how it worked, but this person did this, this, and that, and then I felt better. Well, that's that's how you change it. I haven't looked at the medical
0: databases for a long time. I gather that in what we used to call psychic healing there are a dozen studies or more, but I'm under the impression that there might be hundreds, maybe even as many as thousands of studies in energy medicine, even though this is not what you would call a popular area of research. Uh, Can you give me some
1: idea? I don't think there are thousands. I mean, you can can look back at the earliest studies involving healing, typically of cells or mice or small animals. Um, It started in the 60s. So this is a relatively new area. Um, And since then, I think rather than looking at clinical trials, which is more directly associated with healing studies, it got deflected a little bit. Uh, partially because of the very of the difficulty in doing intercessory prayer studies it got deflected into the Mills area the so-called distant mental interactions with living systems and the reason it was deflected is because whenever you do a clinical trial it, it takes a huge amount of resources a lot of people a lot of tracking getting people to come in to be compliant it's they're very expensive and takes a long time so as we are as we're speaking now uh, we know that the uh, vaccines for covid are are being approved well those took tens of thousands of, of participants and who knows how many other tens of thousands of actual people involved behind the scenes who are getting the data and producing it whatever any amount of time and effort that's why it cost billions to get these these drugs made in the way that they did well we don't have billions we don't even have millions we we have like like 22 dollars so in, in the healing studies, rather than doing it as a clinical trial, you go into the laboratory and get an analog of healing. And so the DML studies were all about stick somebody into a room somewhere and take their physiology and look at their skin conductance or their heart rate or something like that. And then at random times, you, you look at them over closed-circuit TV, and you either just gaze at them, as in the feeling of being stared at, or you, you gaze with intention to try to activate or calm them. And so there's something like three or four dozen controlled studies done of that type and they work. They're not massively monstrous, big effects, but statistically speaking, they are repeatable effects that are statistically significant. That tells us that in principle, simply having somebody pay attention to you from a distance will change your physiology. So it's not much of a step from there to say, okay, maybe it has a healing response. So, So I think that was one of the deflections. The other main reason why this as an area of study has has been fallow for a long time was a large-scale study on intercessory healing by uh, Herb Benson and his team at Harvard. And it didn't work. And everybody in the media reported that. And that basically stopped it in, in one shot. All funding stopped. So that's what can happen quite easily in these, especially when it comes to not only a controversial topic, but a controversial topic that is conducted by Harvard and then reported, which guarantees that all of the major media will carry it. And if you're unlucky and it happens to not be a significant result, that's the end of it. It just stops.
0: I remember when I was a graduate student, I did a simple study using plants, just bean sprouts or alfalfa sprouts where you can have healers try to make the plants grow faster. Easy to measure. Any high school student could repeat those studies. They're not difficult
1: to do. Yeah, and people today are using similar things. With uh, They make a, a batch of rice and they put rice in different buckets and then they, they put healing words on some of the buckets and nasty words on the other buckets. And the claim typically is that the the rice getting the healing thoughts uh, are, remain fresh, or at least they don't become horrible uh, fun guide messes after a couple of days. Um, and doing that personally somewhat, you know, I mean, you don't have to believe what anybody says about such things, but doing it personally has a big effect on people who try it. So we've done studies uh, using plants as well, and you see f- pretty big effects under controlled conditions. Uh, that's what has convinced me, right? I've, there are many things you could read about, and you never quite know to believe it or not. In my own case, the things I end up believing in are ones that I've been able to replicate myself. And that's a limited subset of the entire universe. But it's it's it, the thing which has driven me always has been curiosity, and so the uh, curiosity drove me to test the things that I could. And I wouldn't say everything, but most of the things that I've studied in in terms of psi, whether it's a healing effect or simply an influence of a, of a physical system in some way, it convinces me that it's a real phenomenon, even though I still don't have a good idea about how it works.
0: Dean Radin, this has been a great pleasure to learn about your latest research. I'm thrilled to have this time with you. I'm also very happy to let our viewers know that on January 17, 2021, you will be available for a live stream video on YouTube where you will be fielding questions from our viewers. So Dean, thank you so much for being with me. My pleasure. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.